ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Stalin's death on March 5, 1953, was a watershed in the 20th century. His death opened up the possibility of reforms in the Soviet system, the end of mass terror being the most significant. It also opened up possibilities for a thaw in the Cold War. But what was the final months before and after Stalin's death like? What was the doctor's plot and the anti-Semitic campaign against Soviet Jews about? How did his lieutenants respond to his death? And what was the reaction inside and outside the USSR? I turned to Joshua Rubinstein to talk about his new book, The Last Days of Stalin, for some insight. Joshua Rubinstein is an associate of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. He was an organizer and regional director for Amnesty International USA for 37 years. He's the author of many books, including Leon Trotsky, A Revolutionary's Life, Tangled Loyalties, The Life and Times of Ilya Ehrenberg, and Stalin's Secret Pogrom, The Postwar Inquisition of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. His new book is The Last Days of Stalin, published by Yale University Press. Here's Joshua Rubinstein. So your book, The Last Days of Stalin, looks at the moments leading up to and after Stalin's death in 1953. So what inspired you to write about this period? Well, I've already done several books on Soviet history. I began by writing about the Soviet human rights movement, which concerns the years of the 1960s into the 1980s, mostly under the uh, regime of Leonid Brezhnev. And uh, then I did a biography of uh, Leon Trotsky, a concise interpretive biography for the Jewish Live series of Yale University Press. And this really uh, involved a good deal of research into the Stalin period. Uh, and that piqued my interest. And I had interest among editors at Yale Press to do a book about Stalin. And we decided a book about his last days would be a useful prism into his regime as a whole. So this is not a biography of Stalin. It does not pretend to tell the full story of his 25 years in office or his 74 years of life. It looks at a very concentrated piece of time from the fall of 1952, uh, when he had his last public speech in, at the 19th Party Congress in Moscow. That was in October, through his death in March, and then to the aftermath of the death into the summer of 1953 with the uh, riots in East Berlin and then the arrest of Lavrenti Beria, a Stalin's longtime security chief. So it's a very focused book on this very dramatic set of months. And, and why, do you, why do you feel it was important to illuminate these, these set of months? I mean, most books, of course, take a much longer view of, say, you know, Stalin's rule and, you know, post-war or Stalin's rule in the 1930s or his rise to power in the 1920s. What, what is crucial about these months for you? It's clear that by the end of his life, Stalin was still in control, that his, uh, his closest collaborators, his lieutenants, they like to call themselves his comrades in arms and use this kind of august phrasing, they were still in fear of him. Stalin retained the right to kill until the end of his life. Uh, two members of the uh, Politburo, Vazesensky and Kuznetsov, were arrested and killed at the end of the 1940s. Uh, no one knows why exactly. Uh, 
but they uh, got into trouble with Stalin. He no longer trusted them, and he had them executed. So that could happen to anybody else, and they understood that. So when he collapsed and the guards called for help, uh, they didn't know what to do at first. And there's some feeling that they understood Stalin was deathly ill, that he probably had a stroke, maybe a heart attack or both. And they wanted nature to take its course. But when he didn't die immediately, and the guards raised the second alarm hours later in the morning, um, they, only then were the doctors called. The doctors were not called at the first sign of trouble, which is always a very suspicious move. Uh, but no one can say for sure. Uh, the story is that... Uh, the guards found him on the floor, that he was seemed paralyzed. He couldn't breathe properly. He had soiled his pants uh, with his own urine. Um, they called the leaders like Malenkov and Beria. And Beria said, look, he's sleeping. He's snoring. He's fine. Why are you alarmed? And, uh, you know, to a layman like you and me, maybe we can't tell the difference between someone who's sleeping but is otherwise okay and someone who's sleeping and has had a stroke. So they went away. The guard, the doctors were not called. And the guards called several hours later by six or seven in the morning and said, look, something's wrong with Comrade Stalin. We need the doctors here. Interestingly, they did not summon the doctors themselves. They had to do it through the political leadership, which is in and of itself very odd. Um, and only then were the doctors called. They immediately understood Stalin had had a severe stroke. There was nothing they could do. It's unlike the Western medicine could have done anything. There was no, there, we did not have then uh, the kind of drugs for hypertension that we have now. He had suffered from high blood pressure for years. There's some thought that he'd had strokes or heart attacks at the end of World War II, but no one can say for sure. Um, so the way he was treated, the way he was held in isolation, the very fact that he took ill at the dacha 10 miles out of Moscow and when the leadership made the announcement about his collapse, said that he took ill at his Kremlin apartment, showed they couldn't even share this one little nugget of truth with the population, as if it undercut the claim that Stalin was always working for the Soviet people. You know, there's this uh, story that's told that his delight in his Kremlin office, which faced the street, or one could see from the street, was always left on, as if that meant that Stalin was always working. Well, of course he wasn't always working. He spent months at a time at his dacha in the south, in the Crimea, uh, for rest, especially after the war. But that was never publicly acknowledged. Do you think that there is a, I mean, it's really interesting that at, at this moment in which he, he collapses, he's clearly, I mean, he's, he's elderly. He's, he's 73 when he dies? Or well, how actually old is he was when 74, he, but he had changed 74. his birth date to 73. Right, no one right. knows why. So, you know, he's already, you know, elderly in terms of the life expectancy of even a, um, an elite male in, in the Soviet system. And, and it's interesting that at this moment in which, A, you know, there must have been some sense, though maybe not acknowledged, that people, they're going to have to start thinking about after Stalin, right? Right. And at this moment in which he's collapsed, it seems that they're, they're kind of paralyzed by, on the one hand, um, oh no, what do we do if he dies? And oh no, what if we do if he, what do we do to even show that he's human? And, and second, um, what if he, what if he actually survives, right? <laughs> so it, it, they're kind of stuck in this position, it seems. When they came and saw he had collapsed, uh, the doctors made clear to them that he would not recover. But they waited a couple of days to tell the population, first because they wanted to put in place their own plans. 
what would the succession look like, and that they would all agree to work together to reassure the population. Secondly, they wanted to make sure that he was going to die because they were very afraid that if he recovered or if he recovered only slightly but couldn't exercise power, they'd be in a situation like the Soviet Union had been under Lenin. Lenin had his first stroke in May of 1922 and very slowly and inexorably grew weaker and weaker. A series of strokes afflicted him until he was uh, completely incapacitated, but he didn't die until January of 1924. And this led to a very long and protracted struggle for power that Stalin eventually, um, you know, where he took control. They did not want that kind of long, drawn-out process. They wanted a clean break. So when it was clear he was going to die, then they could make the announcement that he was ill, reassure the population that he was getting the best care possible, which was true. Uh, but everyone understood that if they're going to tell us how ill he was, that means his death was imminent. So Stalin's death, um, I mean, it's a watershed in, in many ways. But in one way, his death prevented what many suspected was another purge of the Soviet leadership, particularly after the 19th Party Congress in August 1952. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, the doctor's plot and the anti-Semitic campaign, which we'll, we'll talk more in, de in detail in a bit. But first, I want to ask you about the, the political atmosphere within uh, – and outside the USSR in the fall of winter 1952, and in particularly this this suspected sense that another purge of the Soviet leadership was in the works. Well, in August of 1952, the Kremlin announced that the 19th Party Congress would be held in October. According to party statutes, there should be a Congress every three years. The 18th Party Congress had taken place in the fall of 1939, earlier than the fall, I'm sorry. But so 13 years had elapsed. We'd had all of World War II, the outset of the Cold War, one crisis after another, no party Congress. Secondly, it was announced that the Presidium, which was this nine or 10 man cabinet around Stalin, would be enlarged to as many as 25. And that a new group of leaders would be elevated to join Stalin's longtime veteran lieutenants, like Malenkov and Molotov and Kaganovich and Varashilov and now Khrushchev, Beria, who were part of the Politburo. And the Politburo's name would be changed to the Presidium. So the fear was that Stalin was elevating these new men, and they were all men, in order to start the process of purging these previous leaders, like the 1930s. And after all, they all knew what happened to Bukharin, to Zinoviev, to Kamenev, these longtime comrades of Lenin, who Stalin had arrested and murdered and executed during the Great Purges. And uh, some of the uh, leaders like Voroshilov and Molotov, they were under a cloud in Stalin's eyes anyway. Molotov's wife, um, Paulina Zemchuzhina, had been arrested in 1949 and sent into exile. Uh, and he had been forced to divorce her. Uh, Mikoyan, Anastas Mikoyan, a leader from uh, uh, the Ar Armenian Republic, long time, uh, long time involved in um, foreign trade, was also under cloud. They were no longer being invited to the dacha, for example. And Stalin was saying nasty things about them. Mikoyan feared that they were going to face physical liquidation. So this process of enlarging the 
what was called the Politburo, into the Presidium was seen as a very worrying trend, a very wor- worrying signal that, you know, if you were going to purge two or three from a group of 10, that would be very noticeable. But if you were going to pur- uh, uh, purge five from a group of 25, that might not seem so noticeable. That's how Mikoyan explained it years later. So that was one thing set in motion by the Congress. Uh, secondly, uh, Stalin said that as uh, the Soviet Union was maturing, getting closer to establishing communism, that the class struggle would sharpen, that the, the opponents of the class struggle, the opponents of communism would grow sharper in their critique and their attacks. So they were really thinking that the time for war with the West was approaching, that now that China had become a communist power, that the constellation of forces favored the Soviet Union, not the West. And so Stalin had beefed up armed forces. He continued the war in Korea over the objections of the Chinese and the Koreans who wanted to sue for peace. They were fed up with the war. They were tired of it. But Stalin prolonged it. So there are very many worrisome things happening. Uh, And then, of course, in January, the Soviet press announced the unmasking of a doctor's plot. The Jewish doctors were plotting with imperialist forces and Zionist forces to undermine the health of Soviet leaders. And this led to complete chaos in the hospitals and the clinics, people not trusting Jewish doctors, Jewish health professionals, people being purged, being arrested uh, on suspicion of uh, not being honest medical professionals. And so this created a lot of tension within the society. No one knew where it was headed. Yeah, I want to ask you about the the doctor's plot and the anti-Kaus Metropolitan campaign and this really sharp turn to just open anti-Semitic uh, sentiment and within the press. Um, it it's it's a really mysterious uh, moment in the in at the end of Stalin's life. Um, and I was I was talking about this. My my wife and I were actually talking about this a few nights ago, and she's originally from Israel, and she actually posed a suggestion of of how this was a reaction in part to the establishment of Israel and, and the, the feelings of, of Zionist or even Jewishness. Like you point out in the book at one point, uh, Golda Meir comes to Moscow and there's a, there's a, there's a kind of open expression of, of solidarity amongst some Soviet Jews with Israel. So first I want to ask you, so what do you think was behind this anti-Semitic turn against Soviet Jews? And also do you think that it might have been a reaction to uh, Israel, the, the alignment of Israel more with, say, the United States in, in the late 40s or in early 50s? Sean, that's a very good point. Let me expand on that. I did a couple of books, uh, which I didn't mention earlier. One, Stalin's Secret Pogrom, the post-war inquisition of the um, Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, which explores the role of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee during the war, and then how Stalin attacked it and attacked its members after the war. Um, The Soviet Union uh, voted at the United Nations to establish the Jewish state, and Stalin personally ordered the Czechs to send arms to Israel in 48, at the time of what uh, the Israelis called the War of Independence, when five Arab countries attacked Israel in the spring after Israel declared its independence its establishment in May of 1948. And the Soviet government was the first to recognize Israel. So Stalin lent substantial military and political support to Israel in those first uh, very dramatic months. 
Then Golda Meir, at the end of August, beginning of September, leads the first Israeli delegation of diplomats to Moscow to head the legation. It was not a full embassy. And the Soviets sent uh, a, a diplomatic group to Tel Aviv as well. And uh, Golda Meir was greeted in the streets of Moscow by tens of thousands of Soviet Jews when she walked to Sabbath services in September, when she went to services for Rosh Hashanah, which was very late that year in October, and on Yom Kippur. This was seen as a very provocative act by the Kremlin and by Golda Meir's Israeli colleagues who thought that this was a little too much. After all, these demonstrations were not taking place in New York or Paris or London. They were taking place in Stalin's kingdom. And they were an expression of allegiance, of solidarity, not just with another country, with a Jewish country. Now, in a war against Hitler, Stalin understood he could trust his Jews. No Jew would betray Stalin for Hitler. But in a war against the United States, where every Jew was presumed to have an aunt in the Bronx, where it was known that Jews had many relatives, and, and Molotov's wife had a, had a brother in Bridgeport, Connecticut, for example. So all of this made uh, Stalin very suspicious of the loyalty of Soviet Jews. Soviet Jews were sending petitions to the Soviet government asking to volunteer on behalf of Israel. These are men with military experience from the war, including officers. So uh, this piqued Stalin's paranoia. And so the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee was held responsible for the demonstrations. The committee was closed, its leadership arrested, and they, were, they and others were put on trial in 1953 and 52 in the spring and summer, and there were 13 executions. But all this was done in secret. It was not an open trial because in the end, the defendants didn't cooperate. They objected to their innocence. So there couldn't be an open show trial. So then the doctor's plot was cooked up and it was probably targeted both at Soviet Jews and Israel and at uh, the security services who were blamed for not being on top of this conspiracy, for letting the conspiracy go on too long. So that was seen as an attack on Beria and the security services. Now, the doctor's plot itself is extremely opaque. There was this announcement on January 13th, and then for another month or five weeks into the, until February 20th, there, were, there was a tremendous amount of propaganda about Zionism, about the Jewish doctors, about this plot, and this provoked a tremendous fear within Soviet society, and rumors began to circulate that Soviet Jews in the wake of the doctor's plot, in the wake of the trial of the doctors and their execu supposed execution, that they would then be deported en masse to Central Asia or Siberia to remote areas of the country. And this is widely held belief even today among Soviet Jewish emigres. And obviously there is a million in Israel and many hundreds of thousands here in America. And they widely, they believe this sincerely and deeply. No one knows where Stalin was taking the doctor's plot. The fact is, on February 20th, all propaganda about the doctor's plot ceased. That could only have happened under Stalin's orders. So it's possible that he saw that things were going too far, that there was too much social turmoil, that he wasn't prepared to carry out these deportations, if they were planned. No one can say for sure. Stalin dies on March 5th. On April 4th, just a month later, the government announces that the doctor's plot was fake. It was a fabrication. The doctors are being released. And on April 6th, another announcement is made that the doctors had been subjected to torture. 
and that this is all the fault of rogue security elements. They couldn't say that it was Stalin who was responsible, uh, and his crime was greater than what the doctors had been accused of doing. Um, and and also, I would say that I would assume that the part of the the leadership wants to also get rid of Beria. So it's a well, no, it's that a little more complicated than that. Yes, they wanted to get rid of Beria, but it was Beria was behind the initiative to disavow the doctor's plot, and they went along with it. Um, so Barry was making gestures that we have to acknowledge were reform-minded, releasing a million prisoners, disavowing the doctor's plot, uh, taking control of the gulag, moving it from the security services to the Ministry of Justice. There was a whole slew of uh, gestures, both domestic and foreign, that were a break from Stalinism, absolute break from Stalinism. And this, they made these gestures as a way to appease the population or reassure the population and as a gesture to the West. Here, we're willing to deal. We're willing to negotiate. Come to us. Talk with us. That was not something Eisenhower was willing to do. Let me ask you a bit more about this this moment of the doctor's plot and this anti-Semitic campaign. Because so, one of the things you uh, – one of the major themes in this book is how – the international community, mostly the West, understood and looked at these events happening in, happening in the USSR. So, and one of the things that you point out is the, 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 the difficult position that Israel is in, in all of this. Because on the one hand, you know, there is the, the Soviet help for the Israeli independence. There is a strong, I think, cultural tie with, with Israel. Um, I mean, I, I say this just because my father-in-law knows all of these, you know, they're Israeli songs, but they come from a, a Soviet <laughs> basis. Well, yes, um, Eastern Europe. <laughs> right, yeah. And, um, and, and also, and so how, what was the reaction from Israel and also the Jewish diaspora in the United States to the news going on around well, this? Well, keep in mind several things. First, Stalin had this idea that because the new leadership of Israel, led by David Ben-Gurion, were East European socialists with roots in the former Soviet Union, Poland, that they might be sympathetic to the Soviet Union in the Cold War, which was an illusion on his part. He was mistaken. On the other hand, Israel was a small, very vulnerable country, and it did not want to take sides in the Cold War. It got arms from the Soviet Union, not from the French, not from the Americans. The Americans didn't start supplying military aid until after the Six-Day War. 1967. So the Israelis needed good relations with the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. There were still millions of Jews who had survived the war. The Israelis needed an outpost, these embassies, which could be listening posts. So they wanted diplomatic relations. They didn't want to be isolated. So when uh, Stalin took anti-Semitic measures after World War II, some were public, some were more discreet, the Israelis did not respond vigorously. Jewish leaders in America did and denounced the doctor's plot and other things that were happening. But the Israelis were very cautious. Abba Iben was the famous Israeli diplomat. He's passed away now. He was the Israeli uh, ambassador to the United Nations. And he was pressing Ben-Gurion to be more outspoken. But Ben-Gurion said, look, we want to keep diplomatic relations. And uh, so I'm going to be very restrained. Of course, I know what's going on. But then on February 9th, a bomb was set off at the Soviet legation in Tel Aviv, and there were injuries. 
And this was a bomb that was placed by right-wing Khairut, uh, very strong far-right nationalists in Israel who were upset with the Soviet regime, understandably. And the Soviets immediately denounced the government, which was not responsible for this, the Israeli government, and broke diplomatic relations. This is a major step. It was very upsetting to Ben-Gurion. He was furious with the right-wing groups in Israel that supported this kind of action. But this was part of the momentum within the drama of the doctor's plot, this break with Israel and this bombing in Tel Aviv. Uh, so then, of course, this, the Israeli press had to be a little more, uh, react more strongly to the doctor's plot. But again, it was the, the initiative for breaking diplomatic relations came from the Kremlin, not from the Israelis. Like I said, a lot of your story does include the international reaction and the context of Stalin's final months and then his death. And one of the things I was struck by, um, but not surprised, but certainly struck by it was the role of rumors. I mean, rumor comes up as a constant source for both journalists who are working in Russia um, but also even Amer the American government seems to be quite reliant on or at least receptive to listening to rumor uh, to understand um, the regime itself and Stalin's last days. So talk about rumor as a source for trying to understand what's going on in the Soviet system at this period. Yeah, you know, I have to say, I think the rumor uh, question certainly relates to how the Soviet population uh, understood things or tried to understand things. I'm not sure rumor was as potent an issue in the West. I think the West simply was badly informed. When you read the minutes of the National Security Council uh, on March 4th, for example, just in the hours after the announcement of Stalin's collapse, when he's still alive, they all assumed that things would grow worse. They all assumed that Stalin uh, had been a media, an ameliorating force within the Politburo that uh, with him gone, Malenkov and Molotov would be more outspoken, more, uh, more against the working with the West, that things would grow worse in the Soviet Union. They didn't understand that first it was all Stalin's power. He wasn't under any pressure from them. And secondly, he was the extreme voice in the Politburo, not them. And that as soon as he died, things would inevitably get better. They didn't understand that. And that's clear from what Nixon says, what Eisenhower says, the vice president, the president, and Foster Dulles and the others. They had, were not prepared for the, the peace gestures and the domestic reform gestures that the new the heirs to Stalin made in March and April and May in the Soviet Union. They were not prepared at all. Uh, they thought this was some kind of, of a play acting, trying to fool the West. And there was incident after incident where the journalists are trying to say, no, something substantial is happening. Even U.S. diplomats in Moscow are saying to uh, the State Department back in Washington, something serious is going on here. You have to respond. You have to take this seriously. Don't dismiss it. Churchill was saying to Eisenhower, look, you met Stalin at the end of the war. You both played a major role in World War II. Now is the time to see what we can do to dissipate this tension. But Eisenhower was very reluctant to engage in this kind of summetry. And the Americans felt that Roosevelt uh, had not handled Western negotiations well uh, at Yalta in January of 1945, and that Truman had failed at Potsdam in the summer of 1945 at the end of the war. 
So the Americans were very reluctant to meet with their Soviet counterparts. And John Foster Dulles was a very determined anti-communist, and he would not, he had no patience for any kind of negotiations. So that discouraged Eisenhower. And then Stalin died. And, and Eisenhower, in fact, did have instincts that told him, now is a moment to turn the page. I'm a new leader. These are new leaders in the Soviet Union. They will take over from Stalin. Now is the time to turn the page and see where we can take things. But again, Dulles was adamantly opposed to any negotiations. And uh, Eisenhower didn't have the wherewithal to overcome those objections. And he probably had some reluctance of his own. So while the Soviets made many gestures toward the West, both in their domestic policy and in foreign policy, which I outline in the book, Eisenhower was not ready to take up that challenge. Do you feel that this was a missed opportunity? Yes. No one can say for sure what would have been accomplished. No one can say for sure that the Cold War would have been um, you know, severely diffused. Uh, but for example, the war in Korea came to an end. That was a Soviet initiative. Two weeks after Stalin died, the leadership made clear to the Chinese and Koreans that they would uh, restart peace talks with the West. And the Chinese and Koreans absolutely wanted that. And the talks began again in April at Pamunjan and led to the armistice in July. And that's the same armistice that governs the peninsula today. It's not perfect. The North Korean regime in, in particular is very extreme, very bellicose, very dangerous. But as yet, we don't have outright fighting. And that's a good thing. So Stalin dies in March uh, 5th, 1953. And his death, of course, reverberates throughout the Soviet Union and also throughout the world. So how did Soviet citizens react to Stalin's death? Well, it's, you know, I'll make some generalizations, but it was, you know, each person responded um, in their own unique way. But generally speaking, there was a great deal of fear, not that things would grow worse, but that there would be turmoil, something that the, the population feared. You know, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets of Moscow to view Stalin's body in the Hall of Columns in the House of Unions just off the Kremlin off Kremlin Square. And the regime did not control the crowds properly. So Khrushchev later said that over 100 people were trampled to death and crushed to death. We believe the figure is far higher, but no one knows for sure. But this was a symbol of the turmoil, a substantial symbol of the turmoil that followed the death that the regime feared would overtake society. Many people cried even people who understood the nature of the system, because Stalin was so inside all of them that the idea of going on without him was almost too much to bear. Other people understood that it was time to celebrate, time to hug each other for surviving. The way, you know, we recall the very dramatic pictures of soldiers and sailors celebrating the end of World War II. They were going to live. They were not going to the front. They were not going to have to invade Japan. Um, the war in Europe was going to be over. They were all celebrating. There was that kind of expression of, you know, we made it. In the Gulag, there was some confusion. There were people who mourned because everything was dependent on Stalin. And others cheered, understanding that things were going to change dramatically. Um, so it was a very mixed kind of response. And of course, there was the histrionics of teachers telling students how terrible it was and we should all cry and ordering their students to cry. Um people making all kinds of foolish statements that, you know, a teacher comes in and says, oh, my daughter asked us, how are we going to live now that Comrade Stalin is dead? And 
these kind of empty statements, uh, people knew not to take seriously. But that's what the regime expected. And, and what was the international reaction? Well, that's very mixed. You know, I did a survey of what's in the press. I was very disappointed at some of the coverage. Uh, there was some sympathy for Stalin. After all, he died just eight years after the end of World War II. He'd been one of the leaders of the Western Alliance after initially siding with Hitler. So there was some modicum of respect for his role during the war, which I think affected the general reaction in obituaries and editorials, which I point out both in the New York Times and in the London Times. I thought the French press was much more down to earth in calling him out as a dictator that he was. Um, in Eastern Europe, uh, the regimes uh, that he'd established in Czechoslovakia, in Hungary, Budapest, in Romania, uh, they uh, gathered hundreds of thousands of people in central squares on the day of the funeral on March 9th to mark Stalin's death. And these are, of course, completely artificial crowds. Um, other people, you know, we know now that there were drunken parties throughout Poland and Romania celebrating his death, that um, East Berliners were going into West Berlin to get updates of news from the, the Western press and popping corks of champagne that Stalin was dead. Um, so there was the official response and there was the popular response, which were very different. Now, you mentioned uh, a bit ago about the break that Stalin's lieutenants uh, initiated after his death, and particularly the role of Beria in attempt to push forward reforms. There's a there's an amnesty of in the of of the Gulag for for many thousands of people. So, talk a bit more in detail about the types of reforms that were put forward and what led to Beria's demise. After all, Beria was a very capable administrator. He was ruthless. He was a murderer, a mass murderer. There are rumors that uh, he would rape women. His, his, he'd walk around the streets or drive around the streets. If he saw a woman he thought was attractive, he'd have her kidnapped. He'd rape her. All that's possible. But he was also very capable. Stalin had put him in charge of the atomic bomb project in 1945 because he knew of his capabilities as an administrator. So the others were very afraid of Beria because they knew how smart he was. And they knew how ruthless he was. So from the very outset, Khrushchev was rallying the others to keep their eye on Beria, because if they didn't kill him, he would do away with them. That was the feeling. Beria, at the same time, wanted very much to improve his image um, within the population. So he initiated these reforms, both economic reforms, the release of millions of prisoners, over a million prisoners from the Gulag at the end of March. Uh, he was behind the disavowal of the doctor's plot. And then, of course, they all agree, and there's something they all agree to, and then their gestures to the West, ending the war in Korea, um, sending a ship that spring to mark the coronation of, uh, of Queen Elizabeth, who still reigns in England to this day. I'm sorry, the funeral of her, of um, Queen Mother. Um, so there's a, a host of uh, gestures. Uh, and he, in Berlin, uh, they had stopped traffic on the autobahns, they, to trucks, they coming into Berlin from the west, so they reopened that, they reopened some riverways in Germany. There are a host of small and large decisions. And there was a feeling that they were ready to deal over Berlin. They knew that East, East Germany was an artificial state, much smaller, much weaker than West Germany. They just wanted to avoid West Germany becoming part of a military alliance of the west. 
That was their overriding concern. Uh, so there's some feeling that they might have been willing to negotiate an end to the division of Germany if Germany could be demilitarized and made neutral and not be permitted to join a Western military alliance, which we know today as NATO. But Eisenhower and Dulles were not up for that challenge, in my view. What could have been accomplished, no one can say for sure. So throughout the spring, Khrushchev is leading a conspiracy against Beria, and he used the riots in East Berlin, which had to be put down with Soviet troops, to blame Beria for that. Beria had no more blame for that than anybody else. So on on June 26, Beria was arrested in the Kremlin. And keep in mind, the Kremlin was uh, controlled by his own guards, by his men. And he was in charge of communication among the Politburo, so he could follow what they were saying. So everything was done extremely quietly and discreetly. He was taken by surprise. He was held in secret, uh, taken out secretly to a bunker that no one knew about, and held and held there until December when he was executed. He was, there was a secret trial and he was executed. So they saw the need to get rid of Beria, which they did. And, and finally, um, you know, Stalin's death was indeed a, a pivotal, I, I think it's a pivotal watershed in the 20th century. And, you know, while there is a lot of evaluation of the legacy of his life, what do you think is the legacy of his death? Well, the legacy of his death is it led very quickly to the end of outright terror in the Soviet Union. It remained a dictatorship of the party, uh, but they were no longer going to carry out mass murder, mass arrests, which they didn't do. Uh, They gradually relaxed things with the West, not to the point where you know, the Soviet Union uh, related to America the way Bermuda does, but uh, became somewhat more open to Western culture. You could have tourism both in both directions, uh, more access to Western culture, Western art, Western music, Western literature. Uh, we had the thaw period under Khrushchev, which was a time of hope, of optimism. Uh, and all that came crashing down with Khrushchev's ouster in October 64 and the installation of Leonid Brezhnev. So then you had decades of what is called the stagnation period. And then Gorbachev came in with another round of reforms, very dramatic reforms. And the Soviet Union could not sustain itself in the wake of those reforms. Um, And so the Soviet Union collapsed. Yeltsin took over, but he could not sustain his own democratic instincts. Uh, He dies. Eventually, Putin takes over, who is now trying to reverse that thaw in a way that Gorbachev and Yeltsin initiated both inside the country and in terms of relations with the West. And so we're at a downturn of relations, we're at a downturn of reform. And the killing of journalists, the killing of opposition figures is very much part of that. That was Joshua Rubinstein, an associate of the Davis Center for Russian and East and Eurasian That was Joshua Rubinstein, an associate of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. His new book is The Last Days of Stalin, published by Yale University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!
Jesus.